Are you also tired of one-size-fits-all weight loss plans? Meet Noom, the personalized solution that meets you where you are. Noom is able to understand your unique needs, from dietary restrictions to medical concerns. Unlike restrictive programs, Noom embraces your lifestyle and choices. Discover a sustainable approach to weight loss, tailored just for you. Honestly, Noom felt like it was made for me. It's not just about what I eat. It's about understanding why. With Noom, I've learned so much about myself and built healthier habits that stick. It's all about progress, not perfection. Say goodbye to restrictive diets and experience the Noom app for yourself with personalized lessons and expert coaching. Noom's psychology and biology-based approach has helped over 5.2 million people achieve their goals. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard-to-recycle plastic into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org to discover more shows like this one. The darkness awaits. History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spooktacular people. Welcome to this 284th episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast, Ghost Tours for the Theater of the Mind. I'm your host, Diane. On this episode, we are going to Iowa. This is a location that was suggested by Jessica Garcia and Lynn Larson Savage. This is the Squirrel Cage Jail, which is found in Council Bluffs. It was originally known as the Potawatomi County Jail, but it got the nickname of Squirrel Cage Jail because this has one of the most unique designs I've ever seen in any jail. I'd never heard of it before, and I was so excited to find out about it because it's just very, very unique. So I'm looking forward to bringing that to you. Before we get into that, I want to welcome to the Spooktacular crew, Megan, Teresa with no H, Jeff, and Alicia Manda. Welcome, everybody. And now, this moment, Naughty. Cornish Funeral Home in Prescott, Arkansas had a very unusual display for years. The display featured the embalmed, mummified remains of a man that everybody just knew as Old Mike. The reason they called him Old Mike was that no one knew who he was. The story is that Mike was a traveling salesman in the early 1900s, 
and he would come into Prescott occasionally on the train to sell his wares, which consisted of stationery and pencils. He would sometimes stay overnight and then leave on the train the next day. No one really got to know the guy. Nobody knew about his family or where he came from. One day, the townspeople found Mike lying under a tree, dead. He had passed away sometime in the night. He was taken to the local funeral home, Cornish Funeral Home, but no identification for him was found. People only knew that his name was Mike, so the funeral home embalmed him and decided to put him in the window to see if anyone recognized him. He remained at the funeral home for the next 60 years. He started off in the window, then they moved him to a closet. He became a tourist attraction and a challenge that young children gave to each other. You know, I dare you to touch old Mike. In 1975, a petition finally got the state attorney general's office to request that Mike finally be given a proper burial, and so he was laid to rest that May with a few people in attendance. The idea that a funeral home would put a body on display in hopes that someone would claim it and do it for 60 years certainly is odd. Hello, listeners. Mort here. Join me in the cemetery. I've got a cozy grave for you and Diane has videos, bonus episodes, logo gear and the HGB Losers Club for you. Go to patreon.com forward slash history goes bump and support the show. And now, this month in history. month of November, on the 9th in 1853, architect Stanford White was born in New York City. Stanford White was a renowned architect. He'd been a member of the prestigious firm McKim, Mead & White and designed the Washington Square Arch, Pennsylvania Station, and Madison Square Garden. He was well-liked, but he had a side many didn't know about him. He had a taste for young chorus girls, even though he was married. He had a red velvet swing in his 24th Street studio, and he would invite a teenaged Evelyn Nesbitt to come have a swing. Nesbitt was an artist model and a cast member in Broadway's hottest musical comedy at the time. She had another admirer, though, named Harry Thaw. He was a wealthy playboy, and on the evening of June 25th in 1906, Thaw murdered Stanford White during a performance of Mamselle Champagne on the rooftop of Madison Square Garden. This was called The Crime of the Century. jails just seem to be crawling with spirits, as we've come to find from the several jails covered on this podcast. No matter the country, region, or city, and no matter the size, prisons just seem to hold spirits. One incredibly haunted jail can be found in Iowa. Council Bluffs was known as the Great Railroad Center of the Northwest. Before that time, it was a hub for trade between Native American tribes and white settlers. The Squirrel Cage Jail was built here in 1885. It had a long run, being used up until 1969. Today it offers tours giving a glimpse into penal history and is said to be home to several spirits. Join me as I explore the history and hauntings of the Squirrel Cage Jail.
The reason why Council Bluffs was considered the great railroad center of the Northwest is because nearly every city in the state of Iowa is connected by rail to Council Bluffs, and they actually have a Union Pacific Railroad Museum right there in Council Bluffs to attest to this great railroad history they have going on there. And I want to thank Jessica, who suggested this location for sharing some pictures in the Spooktacular crew, and one of the pictures that she shared was of the Union Pacific Railroad Museum that they have there. The town was originally known as Traders Point, being named by Francois Guitar, who was a St. Louis businessman. He came to the area in 1824 and established the town as a base for fur trading and other mercantile business with the local Native American tribes. The most prominent being the Potawatomi, for whom the county where Council Bluffs is located is named. The trading was friendly because the chief of the Potawatomi was Billy Caldwell. He was the son of a Potawatomi mother and a Scots-Irish immigrant father. This became a desired destination in traversing the Missouri River for a multitude of groups working their way to the western United States. Many of them were traveling on the Oregon, the California, the Mormon, and the Lewis and Clark Trails. So Council Bluffs is known as Trader's Point at this time. It eventually came to be known as Canesville, and when it was Canesville, it became a Mormon winter encampment. The claim to fame for Canesville was that Mormon leader Brigham Young was sustained as the second prophet and president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints at the Tabernacle here. The Mormon settlers weren't there for very long. They left in 1852, and the town was renamed Council Bluffs. And they got this name because there was another place about 20 miles to the north that was named Council Bluff without the S, and it got this name by members of the Lewis and Clark Expedition. What had happened is the expedition came to this area. They met with the Ato tribe on this bluff. And this is near the Missouri River. And they decided to call it Council Bluff because they had a council up on the bluff. And so I don't know why they decided to add the extra S on the end for Council Bluffs, but it works. The county needed a jail. And Council Bluffs was picked as the location to put the jail. The Squirrel Cage Jail was originally known as Potawatomi County Jail. The building is found at 226 Pearl Street and was built in 1885. The interior of the jail consists of revolving cells that are technically called a rotary jail. This was a design by William H. Brown and Benjamin F. Haw, both from Indianapolis. They patented the design in 1881 and it would be used in 18 jails in the United States. The patent on this design stated, The object of our invention is to produce a jail in which prisoners can be controlled without the necessity of personal contact between them and the jailer. This would mean that the jail could provide maximum security with minimum jailer attention. It was said that if a jailer had a trustee he could trust, he could control the jail. So basically to me, it sounds like they're saying two guys could run a jail. The cells were wedges that resembled the shape of a pie, and these were seated on a platform that rotated in a carousel fashion. They were more secure in that there was only one opening, and so only one cell could be accessed at a time. A man would hand-crank the gears that were beneath the structure to rotate the entire cell block. The design had an upgrade with a core sanitary plumbing system. There was just one problem. Inmates' limbs would get caught either accidentally or on purpose due to self-harm and become severed. By 1939, all the rotary jails had been condemned, save one, and that is our squirrel cage jail here. When I think of this design, it helps me to kind of visualize a Ferris wheel. You can only access, like, get on the Ferris wheel when the car comes and it's right in front of you. 
So it would be the same thing with these cells, only imagine putting it down on the ground and doing a circle that way. Sounds like a great idea because, wow, it'd be really, really hard to escape from something like that. Also sounds really, really dangerous for the inmates, if you ask me. So you can see why the idea of these rotary gels was condemned by the time we get into almost 1940. I think they started figuring out this is not a good idea. That isn't even looking at the fact that people are getting heads and legs and things like that possibly severed in these jails. You've got other things that happen in jail, you know, like maybe a fire. How do you get them out if there's just one way? Now, the squirrel cage jail is unique from all the other revolving cell gels in that it was the only one that was three stories tall. The building itself was designed to be four stories, and this was a grand plan in that the prototype upon which it was based was only one story and had only eight cells in it. And most of the rotary jails were designed that way, just a single story, not a whole lot of cells. The total cost for the build was $30,000, and when it was complete, all three floors of the main jail had the revolving pie-shaped cells, each with their own toilet, and there were quarters for women, a kitchen, trustee cells, and offices for the jailer and other staff. The construction took only five months. The architects Eckel and Mann designed the building exterior with a Victorian style. They incorporated Romanesque arched windows, detailed brickwork, and limestone trim. From the outside, it does not look like a prison. It looks more like a mansion to me. So if you get a chance to Google it, or obviously it is the cover photo that I have for this episode, you look at that, you're not going to think, wow, that's a prison. doesn't look anything like a prison, especially with a lot of the haunted prisons that we've covered on History Goes Bump. A lot of those have the castle-like look to them. This is not that way. This really looks like some rich guy built himself a big mansion. The first inmates arrived on September 11th, 1885 with Sheriff Theodore Guitar at the helm. And I find it interesting that his last name, it's spelled with two T's rather than just one, like Guitar, but this Trader's Point was named by Francois Guitar, who was a St. Louis businessman. So I'm assuming this is a relative of his. These inmates included Miles Mullen, who was a horse thief, Frank Schofield, a forger, John Gordon, who had violated tax laws, Ed Rankin, and the Brock family, Mr. and Mrs. and their daughter. They were all doing time for larceny. At least they kept it in the family, right? And how fabulous they all got to be in the same jail together. Not long after opening, the jailer quarters on the fourth floor revealed another issue with the revolving jail. The malodorous odors from the sewer system traveled upward. The second floor women's jail area was soon converted into a living space because the jailer up there decided, I can't stand this, I gotta get lower. Opinions of the jail were pretty harsh. The danger to inmates' limbs was an issue, as was the lack of ventilation. For many towns, people were critical of the fact that prisoners had their own toilets when many of them did not. You think about in the late 1800s, there was a lot of people's homes that did not have indoor plumbing, and this jail did. So if you're thinking, that guy over there stole something, and he's in jail, and he has a toilet he can sit on, and I've got to go out back in order to go to the toilet? Nah, it's not working for me. So they thought the prisoners were being coddled. But others did focus more on the danger, and an editorial was written that decried the jail saying, Rotary cells of the present jail not only are a farce, they are dangerous to the lives of the prisoners. And like I pointed out, imagine a fire in one of these places. What would you do? 
citizens signed petitions and the Potawatomi County Board of Supervisors unanimously passed a resolution in 1910 to ask voters for $75,000 so that a new county jail could be built. And this would include a residence for the sheriff and his family. Well, apparently there weren't that many in town who supported such an idea despite the complaints and petitions. Maybe it came down to, you've got to provide the money, and people all of a sudden went, nope, the jail we've got's fine. The resolution was not passed and no new jail was built. The squirrel cage would continue on for 40 more years as a rotary jail. In 1960, a prisoner died of natural causes, but it took two days to retrieve the corpse because the rotary mechanism malfunctioned. So again, if it takes you two days to get a corpse out of there, can you imagine what it would be like if there was some kind of natural catastrophe? And the other thing, what if there was an emergency for one of the prisoners? After that, the mechanism was disabled. So they finally went, you know what, this is ridiculous. We're going to stop this. We're going to disable it. Access had to be cut through the outer cage to the cells so they could be reached from the floor landings. And then the jail continued to operate until 1969. Up until nine years before it closed down, it worked just like a rotary jail. (laughs) It just amazes me. After the jail ceased operations in 1969, it was acquired by the Council Bluffs Park Board. And in 1972, the squirrel cage was named to the National Register of Historic Places. This is only one of three revolving jail cell prisons still in existence. The jail was still in great need of restoration efforts by 1977, and the Historical Society took up the effort. They are the current owners and operators of the facility, and they offer tours. One of the things visitors can see are the signatures and dates made by some of the former infamous residents on the cell walls. The jail is open from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, April through October. So this is a great place to check out on a tour. They do a lot of school programs and things like that, so kids can kind of get a feel for what it was like. There are many visitors and staff who claim to have experienced supernatural things at the jail. Paranormal experiences here date back to before the prison was ever built since this was a main trading post between Native American tribes and white settlers, we might have some other things that have happened on this land as well. The apartment on the top floor was not only not used because of the odors, but there are claims that strange things happened up there. Bill Foster was a jailer there in the 1950s, and he moved out of the fourth floor after experiencing what he called strange going-ons up there. And I noted, if he was living in this apartment in the 1950s, They must have done something about the odors so that he didn't mind being up there. He reported hearing disembodied footsteps on the fourth floor. These are thought to belong to J.M. Carter, who oversaw the jail's construction. He lived in the top floor apartment for a while. There's a previous jailer haunting the fourth floor as well. He was named Otto Gufoth, and his full-bodied apparition has been seen. It seems weird to me that a guy who was overseeing the construction of the jail actually was living in it at the time, but obviously they must have had that fourth floor apartment done so that he was able to do that. The experiences indicate that the activity we have going on here is both intelligent and residual. Nevermore Paranormal investigated the jail and they claimed to have caught EVP of laughing, a voice saying, give it to me, and you can't, said by a little girl with a southern accent. She's also said who's there, and she's shushed people on EVPs as well. In Puerto Rico, we call ourselves Boricua. We are proud, passionate, and full of life. 
On our island, adventure finds you. Strangers aren't strangers for long. The size of the audience doesn't change the beauty of the music. And we celebrate every last ray of sun. Live Boricua. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. This Valentine's Day, Dunkin's got the perfect pairings to show your love. So get down on one knee with a dozen brownie batter donuts and a cocoa mocha signature latte. Or make them swoon with a strawberry dragon fruit Dunkin' refresher with a Cupid's Choice Donut. Are you ready for love? America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer. The Paranormal Research and Investigative Studies Midwest, or PRISM Group, investigated in 2005. They managed to video a cabinet door opening by itself three times. Of course, if this only happened once, I'd be like, okay, well, is it a little bit off kilter? Was there a breeze? Something else. But if it does it three times, starts to convince you that maybe something a little bit paranormal is going on there. Of course, I'd want to debunk it and make sure that it isn't just a weird hinge or something. They also captured orbs on video at the same time that EMFs registered electromagnetic spikes and temperature changes were noted. It's one of the few times that I trust an orb to be something other than a bug or dust is if you're also getting something else that's coinciding. And I'm really that way when it comes to any investigation. You really want to have more than one thing going on at a time. A flashlight comes on and you get an EMF reading or a temperature change to convince me that it's something that's just not by chance. Because as you know, I'm pretty skeptical about this stuff. In 2008, the Carroll Area Paranormal Team, or CAPT, investigated the jail and they captured unexplained light activity in the infirmary and unusual sounds. Carla Borgalia with the Historical Society of Potawatomi County has said that she had the following experiences. I've had my hat pulled off my head and my hair played with. I've seen mists, shadows, full-bodied apparitions, heard footsteps, voices, and doors closing. In addition to the little girl, there are reports of a teenage girl, several men, some inmates, some jailers, and a couple different women's voices caught on EVP or audibly heard during the night. We've also had two ghost cats that are known for brushing up against people's legs. Many groups have caught meows on the recorders and seen the little striped cats going through doorways. So you've got a lot of spirit activity going on here. A little girl, a teenaged girl other women's voices being caught that must not be the teenager or the little girl, and then lots of men. And of course, we always love our ghost animals. Love those ghost kitties. Heavy breathing and sighing and the jingling of keys have been heard, and strange lights have been seen. The audible voice of a little girl singing has been heard, and this little girl has been seen coming from the juvenile detention center by many people. These claims come from investigators from all over the country, which makes the claims more believable since they've all had similar stories without contact with each other. A woman working on a project in the building after hours saw the little girl. She was dressed in gray and inside a cell that was locked with no way in or out. Staff claim that whatever spirits happen to be in the jail, they are friendly and non-threatening. There's a great feeling of sadness throughout the building. 
So why do we have hauntings here? I don't know why we have a little girl and this teenage girl and these other women, because the only deaths that happened in the jail were male. And it seems like the bulk of a lot of the haunting activity is female in nature. There were four deaths in the prison. A prisoner was trying to carve his name on the ceiling and he fell three stories. That belongs in the archives of dumb criminals, I guess. Another committed suicide by hanging himself in his cell. A third prisoner had a heart attack. And I'm imagining that that's the one that they had a hard time getting the body out for two days, maybe. The fourth death came about during the farmer's holiday strike in 1932. An angry mob was storming the jail when an officer accidentally shot himself. The sheriff at the time was named Laneson, and he'd hired 98 special deputies to get rid of roadblocks caused by the strike. He promised to fight it out if it takes 5,000 deputies, adding if the Potawatomi County Jail bulges with picketers, it will just have to bulge. I'm going to see that law and order are maintained. Some strikers took that to mean that the jail was bulging with their buddies and word spread that a thousand men were on their way to Council Bluffs. Tensions flared and the sheriff told the press that if the jail was mobbed, his men were armed and would handle it in the best possible manner. Deputies have been told they could shoot to kill should any farmers try and storm the jail. Tragic accident occurred when Special Deputy Claude Dale was shot and killed from a gun that accidentally discharged during a weapons test. So it's only those four deaths. Where is all of this other activity coming from? We've got sadness, maybe some fear. That's all going to feed into the paranormal stuff. But again, where is this other female activity coming from? Well, St. Paul's Episcopal Church, it said, had a morgue that was on this site before the jail was here. Is it possible that spirits from some of the bodies that pass through that morgue are now spirits inside the jail? It's a possibility. It's the only thing that I could think to explain why we would have these females in the jail, is that somehow their bodies were coming through the morgue. Maybe there's some other reasons for the activity. Were these people who died on this land prior to the jail being there? We don't know if there were some settlers, homesteaders, something like that, that were maybe here that died in some other way. We've got different ages here. Could have this been a whole family where you had a, a mother and two daughters, one a teenager and one a younger girl who all died? We just don't know. What does seem to be true is that a lot of people have had experiences here. Is a squirrel cage jail haunted? That is for you to decide. They do host paranormal investigations here. I thought this would be a neat place to maybe do some kind of a meetup. It would be nice if we could do something that would be like the Velisca Axe Murder House, then hit this jail, and then go to my sister's farm. I have these great ideas for fun little meetups, but they're all pretty like two hours away from each other. (laughs) So I don't know that it would work out, but I'm definitely looking at Iowa as being some kind of a meetup maybe sometime this next year. And speaking of which, on tap for 2019 so far, I am going to be part of three live shows, one in Louisville, one in West Virginia, and one right down here in Florida in St. Augustine. So put on your calendars to come to St. Augustine in October. There's no better time to be here. We don't have anything definitive on it yet. So before we start throwing out dates, I want to make sure that we've got a definitive location that we're going to be hosting the tour and such. But be thinking about that in the future. Obviously doing Louisville again, we'll be going to Waverly. I'm looking so forward to hitting Waverly again. That's going to be a lot of fun. And then in June, Haunted America Conference. I'm going to be doing some ghost hunting there. Yes, I'm going to be tempting the spirits. So that 
will be towards the end of June. Tickets will be going on sale coming up here in January. When those do go on sale, I will let you know so that you can get your tickets for that as well and get yourself into the after event thing of your choosing. Hopefully you want to go on a ghost hunt with me. I think we're going to do the Mineral Springs in Alton. So that should be a lot of fun. I'll get all that stuff up on the events page over at the website, which you can check out at historyghostbump.com. And if you want to send me some feedback, you can do that at historyghostbump at gmail.com. And I did get a couple of emails. The first one is from Cindy, and she said, Hi, Diane. In one of your last podcasts, you talked about how when people were renovating old homes, they would peel down to the first layer of paint so they could match what the original paint looked like. Recently, we visited George Washington's home, Mount Vernon. The guide mentioned that during that time period, one of the ways that people with money would show off their wealth was to paint their homes with expensive paint. The original paint may not have been as fancy as some of the newer versions. Mount Vernon is painted in a turquoise colored paint. A few years ago, when they repainted, they wanted to use paint that was as close to the original as they could find. At today's prices, it cost almost $500 per gallon. Wasn't sure if you knew this, but I thought it was a very interesting piece of history. I did not know that. And oh my gosh, that's why renovations can cost so much. Can you imagine $500 per gallon of paint? I practically croak when I have to spend 30. (laughs) So wow. Thanks for sharing that, Cindy. And then I told you I had another longer email with experiences from a listener named Holly. And what is so interesting about this is on the last podcast, I shared some experiences that Cheyenne had had. And she mentioned this place called Haida Gwai. I don't know if I'm saying that right, but it's this place that was formerly known as the Queen Charlotte Islands off the coast of Vancouver, British Columbia. And I'd never heard of it before. This shows up in Cheyenne's email. Well, in Holly's email, this is going to show up as well. And so I was thinking, oh my God, that's some really weird synchronicity. How in the world am I getting two emails from two different people talking about a place I've never heard of before? And so I was all excited about the synchronicity. And then when I contacted them both and said, hey, this is kind of weird, come to find out their mother and daughter. But they did not know that they were both emailing me. So it still was kind of cool when you get right down to it. And they both told me different stories. So I had no reason to believe that they knew each other at all. So here we go with Holly's email. The women in my family, mom's side, have always had an awareness of unusual energy. We're born with it, and it really seems to kick into high gear when we hit puberty, and we'll get stronger as time goes by. My first share happened when I was 12. I lived on Hiata Gwai for a good part of my early life. There was a small old graveyard walking distance from my aunt's place, and I was poking around in it with my best friend at the time. We were seeking out older graves for some reason. The older, the better. I found one that was old and weather-beaten. It was covered in weeds. I tried to brush it off, and when my hand came into contact with it, the oddest sensation happened. Everything seemed to spin briefly but sharply, and I found myself looking up from a different perspective. I'd been kneeling. Now I was prone. I saw in front of me a youngish man holding the hand of a small boy, I would guess five. They were looking down at the grave and there was such sadness and a lost look in their eyes. I tried to say something and realized I couldn't. They were dressed in clothes from the early 1900s, maybe the 20s, 30s. For a brief instant, it seemed like my eyes locked with the little boy who looked surprised. I think I smiled. I'm not sure. Then that same weird spin happened again and I was back to kneeling in front of the stone. I quickly stood up and went after my friend who'd wandered off. We left shortly afterwards. 
I wanted to tell her what happened, but I couldn't. Not yet. A few weeks later, I told her what happened. I lost my friend that day. She not only didn't believe me, but she spread it around school as well, and that led to some pretty intense bullying. I kept my mouth shut about things like that from then on, unless I was with family. Well, that really sucks. I would have believed you if I was your friend. What a weird experience. And I mean, here's the thing. Yeah, it sounds pretty outlandish, but that's a hell of a thing to make up, isn't it? I mean, if you're going to say, oh, well, I saw this ghost or a black thing or a shadow figure walk across the cemetery, that's pretty easy to make up. But to be as detailed and as weird of an experience as what you had, uh, people don't make that stuff up. I don't know. Second story. My grandfather and I had a strong connection when I was growing up. He was the one who would calm the inner storm when no one else could, especially my teen years, which were hell all around. He would just put his arm around me and I'd lean in. Wintergreen and Old Spice. I'd breathe it in and seem to find peace, if only for that moment. From the first stroke, he had several and I believe three heart attacks and fought a cancer a couple of times. This eventually is what took him. I always knew something was wrong. Wow, he got hit with all kinds of stuff. I would call my grandparents and my grandmother took to calling these one of my spooky calls. Jump ahead many years. I was 28 and a single mom. I knew my grandfather was going. My mother had made the trip from Winnipeg to Edmonton to say her goodbyes. I was frustrated because I could not afford to go. I went to bed that night and I had a really hard time falling asleep. I tossed and turned. I cried and finally slept. I woke up at around 4.30 a.m. my time. I know I was awake. My grandfather was sitting on the edge of my bed. He was just sitting there patiently like he'd been waiting. I looked at him startled at first, then a lot confused and happy to see him. He nodded at me. I smiled. He spoke, but I didn't hear his voice. I read his lips. He said, time for me to go, lass. I love you. I'm tired. I couldn't say anything. I just nodded, feeling kind of numb. He smiled again, and then he just wasn't there anymore. I sat for a long time and tried to sort out what I'd just experienced. In Edmonton, an hour behind, my grandfather passed away in the hospital with my grandmother and their five children. He breathed his last at around 3.30 a.m. To this day, at times of high emotions, I smell wintergreen toothpaste and Old Spice, and I feel his presence. And some of those times she shared was when her daughter was born, at her graduation, just before I walked her down the aisle to get married. Those were specific times. I got married last year in October to a man I knew as a friend for many years. As I walked toward him with my mom on one side and my daughter on the other side, I smelled it again, wintergreen and Old Spice, and an overwhelming feeling of love and strength. I whispered, hey, granddad. The sensation and the scent stayed with me until I was standing in front of my future husband. Well, that kind of choked me up a little bit. Thank you for letting me share. And then she said, I'm glad my daughter told me about your podcast, Keep It Spooky. And it didn't occur to me because I didn't know at the time that Cheyenne was her daughter. So very cool. And what I thought was really interesting is, again, neither one of them shared the same stories. The experiences that Cheyenne shared were when she was a little girl and a baby. So things that she wouldn't really remember that well. And so her mom would have had to have told her those stories and she didn't share those with me. She shared other stuff. I just thought that was very interesting. Thanks, ladies. I have a review from Apple Podcasts to share. Extra, extra large historian. What a great show. Very informative. Five stars. I found this podcast a month or so ago and I really enjoy the history aspect of it. And the paranormal is interesting as well. I'm an Iraq war veteran and I suffer from PTSD. Listening to this podcast really helps me focus and not get bogged down by intrusive thoughts that can ruin the best of days. Keep up the good work. Well, first and foremost, thank you so much for your service. And 
I don't know what it's like to have PTSD, but from the things that I've heard, it is really an awful thing to have to deal with. It's one of those hidden things that people don't see on you that can be very disabling to people. And so it really uh, makes me feel good that the podcast brings you a little bit of relief from that. And um, just always remember that you are loved and appreciated. And thank you for listening. I want to thank all of you for listening to this episode. I've been your host, Diane. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode was brought to you by our executive producers. We don't have anybody to welcome into the cemetery this episode, so I'm just going to hand it right on over to Mort. Eulogies by Mort. Jenny Watts supported HGB for three years. That kind of support moves me to tears. She came from the land of the koala and kangaroo, and she was a fan of things that went boo. Stuart Putney lived in the city of Roanoke. I feel quite sad that she had to croak. She was mom to kids and a cute little dog. I guess you could call this her epilogue. Amy Martinez came from the Lone Star State. Here with me she has met her fate. She was a fan of cheerleading and the military. Now it's my job her body I bury. Jen Belkis was a mom to two boys. They probably made a lot of noise. I bet that's why she listened to the podcast. At least now she has some peace at last. Roxanne Cargill had this nickname of Rockstar. She had supported HGB for over two years so far. She shared with us in bulk the pagan holiday. Now on her corpse the bugs will play. Melody Davis had lived in the state of Indiana. I designed her chest tomb to be like a cabana. For two years she had been an executive producer. I'm really glad I got a chance to introduce her. Mark Fathers came from the land down under. Can't you hear, can't you hear the thunder? For two years he gave HGB his support. Now he gets to spend eternity with me, Mort. Have a spooky experience that occurred at an historic location? Want to give us feedback or have a suggestion for the show? Share it with us at historygoesbump at gmail.com.